Hi everyone, my name is Dr. Mark Eatonson. Welcome to Heal NPD. Many of the issues in pathological narcissism and NPD involve difficulty perceiving the difference between self and other. Defense mechanisms like projection, projective identification, idealization and devaluation, introjection, splitting, and omnipotent control are all to some extent grounded in underlying confusion about what is self and what is other. In some narcissistic pathologies, there's an active unconscious obliteration of the dividing line between self and not-self that results in a kind of solipsism that disrupts empathy and leads to cold or callous treatment of other people. In short, narcissists struggle with boundaries. But they aren't the only ones. Many of the comments that I receive on this channel are from individuals who have been in dysfunctional or abusive relationships and who have struggled to set and maintain adaptive boundaries. So today's episode is for both sides of the aisle. I'll be providing a definition of interpersonal boundaries. I'll be discussing the reasons why boundaries are important for mental health and for healthy relationships. I'll be discussing the problems with boundaries that often occur in pathological narcissism. And I'll be providing some basic tips for assertive behavior. So let's get started. The ability to set and maintain adaptive boundaries is a foundational skill and a central issue in all relationships, including those that involve pathological narcissism. Boundaries allow us to communicate effectively, to get our needs met, and to protect ourselves from mistreatment and from abuse. But what is a boundary? Simply put, a boundary is a limit, set by you or by someone else, that protects something of value. Imagine for a moment what would happen if your home didn't have a front door. It wouldn't take long before the intrusion of weather, bugs, animals, and even other people would make your space unlivable. Your home's front door is a barrier. It's a limit. It's a boundary that protects you and your belongings. It's what allows you to have things of value. Nothing functions without boundaries. Your home needs a door. Your body needs skin. Your nation needs laws. And your relationships need rules. Mutually agreed upon limits concerning what is permissible, and what is not. We are each entitled to set limits that feel good to us and that reflect our personal boundaries. Some simple examples might include the right not to have our bodies touched without our consent, the right not to be spoken to in an abusive or a demeaning manner, and the right to manage our own friendships and finances. When discussing boundaries, I'm sometimes reminded of Goldilocks and the Three Bears. In that tale, Goldilocks encounters three versions of everything in the bear's home. One version is too small, too soft or too cold. One version is too large, too hard, or too hot. And one version is just right. Like the things in the bear's home, boundaries often come in three versions. Too porous, too inflexible, and just right. Porous boundaries are like a door that doesn't close all the way, or one that doesn't lock. The barrier between inside and outside is too permeable. Those with porous boundaries may not feel entitled to a private space in their lives. They may feel conflicted about setting and enforcing limits on loved ones' behaviors. They may allow themselves to be taken for granted, taken advantage of, uh, manipulated, or controlled by someone else. They may allow someone else to control their finances, dictate who they can be friends with, or to dismiss and devalue their thoughts and feelings. Sometimes, people with porous boundaries transgress on the boundaries of other people as well. They may feel entitled to all of a person's time or attention. 
They may think it's okay to invade their partner's personal or private space, or they may place demands on a partner to reveal every single thought inside that person's head. They may not respect locked or closed doors, they may secretly go through their partner's phone or social media accounts, and they may reveal intimate details about a partner to friends or coworkers without that person's consent. Basically, people with porous boundaries are unable to protect what's important, and they make it difficult or impossible for others to protect what's important to them. Now, in contrast to porous boundaries, inflexible boundaries can also be problematic. They're like a door with five deadbolts and an armed guard. Healthy relationships involve compromise and negotiation from all involved parties. If one person is unwilling or unable to make reasonable compromises, then it places an unfair burden on the other person or persons to make more than their fair share of compromises to compensate. Examples of inflexible boundaries might include rigid ideas about cleanliness, unwillingness to allow spontaneity, the tendency to take things personally and to hold grudges, being too quick to cut people out of your life, expecting that everyone will just magically know and adjust to your personal preferences, uh, and attempting to control what others do, say, think, or feel. Inflexible interpersonal boundaries can also look like an inability or an unwillingness to get close to other people emotionally. Inflexible boundaries keep too much of the world out of your home. The air gets stale. You begin to run out of food. The utilities are gradually shut off. You protect what's important, but it comes at the cost of physical, mental, or emotional health. As in the story of Goldilocks, there is a level of boundaries that is just right. We call these adaptive boundaries, and they're anchored in your personal values, but they also respect the values of other people. Adaptive boundaries consist of a combination of strength and flexibility. They're firmly rooted in the rights and the values of the individual. They can withstand heavy stress and strain, but they're also flexible enough to adapt to the given situation, and they can be moved when appropriate. Okay, so that's a primer on the concept of boundaries and why they're important. As I've discussed in previous episodes, individuals with pathological narcissism and NPD have difficulty recognizing and respecting the boundaries of other people. Pathological narcissism involves deficits in self-image that require the individual to seek out external infusions of self-esteem. And this process requires a constant breaking down of personal and psychological boundaries. If someone is trying to take something inside of you and use it to sustain something inside of them, that is by definition a boundaryless process. But the lack of boundaries in pathological narcissism and NPD is often much more profound, involving a fundamental absence of differentiation between self and others. This absence of a differentiated self is due to developmental deficits that extend back into childhood when we're first forming a separate identity. Psychologically, it's thought that infants rely on a feeling of merger with caregivers to sustain their fragile experience of self. They need to be suspended in a kind of ongoing reverie of psychological and emotional oneness or unity with caregivers that helps to ameliorate the lack of internal cohesion and terrifying self-states that are thought to dominate the first years of life. The analyst Donald Winnicott called this suspended reverie going on being. Winnicott thought that young children must be allowed to fully soak up this subjective merger with caregivers before they could begin to emerge as a separate psychological being. In Winnicott's model, successful emergence as a separate self was only possible if the child had accumulated 
good enough experience that makes being a separate self tolerable. Margaret Mahler termed this process of emerging as a separate self individuation. Individuation is the process of separating psychologically from caregivers. It involves building an identity that is yours, that's based on your personal experience, and a sense of an inner world that is bounded and separate from the inner worlds of those around you. For children who have had good enough experience, that is, who have felt adequately supported and cared for, adequately seen and understood, adequately held and suspended both physically and emotionally in blissful merger with caregivers, and who have been allowed to emerge from that reverie at an organic and natural pace, the process of individuating or separating psychologically can be one of increasing competence, confidence, and pride in the discovery of one's own abilities. However, a lot can go wrong on the path to forming a separate self. Various forms of trauma can force the child to individuate before they're ready, resulting in a fragile self that is easily overwhelmed. The demands of existing as a stable, separate, and boundaried self can be overwhelming, and the fragile self-structure that results from premature individuation is easily toppled, resulting in something that psychologists call fragmentation. The nascent self is fragile and wobbly when it first begins to individuate. It's easily overwhelmed and easily frustrated. It's full of unrealistic expectations about itself, and it's subject to polarized self-images that are either all good or all bad. Young children may expect themselves to be perfect. They may have totally unrealistic ideas about their own capabilities, or they may vacillate between grandiose self-experience and utter loss of self. We must gradually develop a self-image that is flexible, stable, and realistic. We do this during a period of development called the rapprochement subphase. Margaret Mahler first identified this subphase of individuation, and she noticed that young children would blissfully run away from their caregivers when they went to play, delighting in their independence and their developing capabilities. However, at some point, they would begin to turn back just to make sure that their caregiver was still available to help them if needed. Mahler conjectured that this reassurance-seeking had profound developmental implications. Children in this phase exist in a state of hyperpermeable boundaries. They seek independence and individuation, but they still rely on the safety of a caregiver to sustain their sort of wobbly self-image. The world is a big and a scary place, and they've begun to come up against their own physical, emotional, and mental limitations. Being able to access their caregiver's strength, positivity, and encouragement allows them to continue on the path toward independent selfhood. In Mahler's model, some individuals get stuck in the rapprochement subphase of individuation. They remain suspended between a merged self and a separate self. And this level of object relations is sometimes referred to as the borderline range of functioning, which is different, by the way, than borderline personality disorder. Individuals in the borderline range of functioning struggle with boundaries. They have extreme difficulty generating stable, moderate, and realistic images of themselves and of other people. At a basic level, they remain only quasi-individuated. Like the children in Mahler's studies, they seek independence, but quickly become overwhelmed. Their images of self and others are often polarized into categories of perfection and worthlessness. 
they often send mixed messages that reflect deep ambivalence about being a separate self. They may fluctuate between states of essential boundarylessness, where they seem to seek complete merger with other people, and states of extreme or even forceful separation, where they seem to hate other people and view them as intrusive or controlling. Individuals in this range of function are also frequently confused about their feelings and intentions. The self is not developed enough at this stage to tolerate its own internal contradictions, so it relies instead on reality-distorting defenses like splitting or denial. The underdeveloped or damaged self is also not able to tolerate making mistakes or being wrong due to internal polarizations. If the self isn't perfect, then it must be worthless. And if it's worthless, then what is the point of even being a self in the first place? These lines of thought cause collapse into depression, anxiety, hopelessness, shame, and even suicidality. The only alternative is to externalize blame, which allows the individual to direct those harsh, polarized self-perceptions and feelings to other people instead of to the self. There's also often a tendency to experience very powerful emotions that quickly overwhelm the fragile self and sort of spill over onto and even into other people. This is called projection and projective identification. Now, individuals in the borderline range of functioning rely on these and other defenses because they blur the line between self and other, allowing them to disown thoughts and feelings that their fragile self-structure can't tolerate. But the permeable boundaries that allow projection also allow something called introjection, which is where the thoughts, feelings, and perceptions of other people are experienced as coming from inside the self. And this is the mechanism that enables self-object experiences. Individuals in the borderline range are able to soak up the ways that other people regard them as though those feelings were generated by their own self. If they feel idealized, it's as though they were generating the perception themselves. Individuals with pathological narcissism and NPD rely on this phenomenon to generate self-esteem. However, just as they can sort of soak up positive, idealizing feelings about the self, they can also soak up negative feelings. And this results in a kind of hypersensitivity to shame and humiliation. And this is why people with NPD seem so sensitive to the slightest negative perception about themselves. Such perceptions are not experienced as the mere opinions of other people. They're experienced as facts about the self that must be fought with, neutralized, or expelled. Now, it's important to remember that these issues with boundaries affect anyone organized at the borderline level. That includes people with NPD, but also people with other personality disorders like borderline personality disorder, uh, dependent personality disorder, paranoid personality disorder, and obsessive compulsive personality disorder, as well as others. This is why there appear to be so many commonalities between all of these disorders. They all involve functioning in the borderline range where the separation of self and others is incomplete and boundaries are hyperpermeable. Different personality styles will cope with these issues in different ways. Paranoid personalities rely more heavily on projection and externalization. Individuals with BPD struggle more with issues pertaining to merger and separation, while individuals with NPD struggle more with maintaining a stable, positive, and realistic self-image. But all utilize common, borderline-level defenses like projection, projective identification, denial, splitting, and acting out. And all contain a fundamental confusion between self and others.
And this is something that continues to irk me about the ways that pathological narcissism and NPD are represented in popular media. Because once you realize the common underpinnings of all personality disorders in terms of incomplete individuation of self and maladaptively persistent reliance on reality-distorting defenses like denial, defenses that blur the boundary between self and others like projection, and defenses that disrupt the continuity of internal experience like splitting, the difference between personality disorders becomes relatively minor. They're elaborations on a common theme organized around similar central deficits and using similar ways of compensating and coping for the constant intrusions of primitive, unindividuated self-states into conscious experience. The main differences have to do with the core schemas around which these issues tend to occur. NPD should not be synonymous with abuse, violence, or evil. Someone with NPD can certainly do those things. They can certainly behave in harmful or abusive ways toward other people. But that in no way represents the heart of the disorder. The heart of NPD is an unstable self-image and deficits in coping with the issues that are caused by having an unstable self-image. In the borderline range of functioning, those ways of coping involve a constant erasure of boundaries in the pursuit of reassurance. Just like the young child looking over their shoulder to make sure their caregiver is still there, still watching, still believing in them and their abilities, individuals with NPD are constantly seeking external infusions of self-esteem and periodic return to unindividuated states with those around them, in which the other person's positive regard can become the narcissist's positive regard. Now, all that being said, boundary erasing can have really negative consequences. The pressure to prop up the fragile self and defend it against perceived threats, whether internal or external, can cause people with NPD to engage in controlling behavior, devaluing behavior, and at times cruel or even abusive behavior. No one should tolerate mistreatment or abuse. It's incumbent upon each of us to set and maintain our own boundaries. Each of us is entitled to decide how we want to be treated. We're entitled to ask for that treatment, and we're entitled to leave when someone refuses to treat us in the ways that we want to be treated. I used to run a therapy group that discussed boundaries and assertiveness, and people would come in so confused about what constitutes an effective boundary, how to communicate about their boundaries, and how to be assertive when their boundaries were crossed. So here's what I would tell them. First, what's an effective boundary? An effective boundary is one that you can state simply and clearly. Examples include things like, I don't want to be yelled at. I don't want to be touched like that. I want to be treated with kindness and respect. Importantly, your right to set a boundary ends where another person's rights begin. You're not entitled to control anyone else's behavior. You're not entitled to make anyone feel a certain way about you. You're not entitled to touch anyone else's body or control their movements, interests, friends, or beliefs. Two, how should you communicate your boundaries? Well, there's no perfect way to communicate boundaries. Different people respond differently to different communication styles. It's not on you to, quote, make anyone understand your boundaries. You can't make anyone else respect your boundaries. All you can do is state your boundaries as clearly and unapologetically as possible and then be willing to follow through to protect them. If someone crosses a boundary, you get to decide what you will do about it. Maybe you give a warning. 
Maybe you decide to leave the relationship and never look back. Maybe you decide to involve the authorities. It's up to you. You can't force people to respect your boundaries, but you can absolutely follow through in protecting them. Your ability to protect your boundaries ends where another person's rights begin. Physically or emotionally harming someone because they crossed a boundary is not protecting your boundary. It's violating theirs. If someone is hurting you, get help. Leave the situation and then take necessary steps to protect yourself in the future. Three, how to be assertive. Like boundaries, assertiveness ranges from too little to too much. Too little assertiveness is called passive behavior. Too much assertiveness is called aggressive behavior. The easiest way to think about assertiveness is to think about rights. Each of us has rights, and those rights typically extend to the boundaries of our skin, and sometimes beyond, for example, when it comes to property or dependents for whom we have legal responsibility. Passive behavior is when you allow someone to violate your rights. Examples might include not speaking up for yourself or your needs because you're afraid of offending or disappointing someone. Now on the other end of the spectrum, aggressive behavior involves protecting your rights while violating the rights of someone else. Examples might include verbally berating or physically assaulting someone because they offended you, invading someone else's space because you want more for yourself, etc. Now right in the middle between passive and aggressive behavior is where we find assertiveness. Assertiveness prioritizes both your rights and the rights of the other person. Examples of assertive behavior include, you know, politely but firmly informing the server at a restaurant that your order is incorrect, kindly but firmly asking someone to lower their voice when speaking to you, or respectfully declining an invitation that you don't wish to attend. Now, the beautiful thing about assertiveness is that you never have to, quote, win a fight or argument. You never have to be proven right. You don't have to somehow get the other person to agree with you. All you have to do is state your boundary and be willing to follow through if the other person doesn't respect it. Perhaps that involves asking to speak to the manager if your server refuses to fix their mistake. It might involve excusing yourself from a conversation if the person refuses to lower their voice. It could also involve more extreme responses. You get to decide what's appropriate. And so long as you respect the rights of those around you, you can't go wrong. Don't like the way a partner treats you? Tell them in a firm but respectful way. And if they don't listen, you can leave. You can call a friend for support. You can call the police for help. No one is entitled to force you to be in a relationship in which you're unhappy. And if they're attempting to do so, then you need to find help. Assertiveness often looks like seeking support engaging in self-care, asking for what you want or need, and walking away when the other person decides not to respect your request. Assertiveness almost never looks like arguing, fighting, hitting, manipulating, coercing, taking, or hurting someone in any way. If you're confused about assertive behavior, boundaries, or your rights, then you need to seek support. Call your friend, talk to a therapist, speak to a lawyer, consult with your doctor, go to the police. No one should construe anything I'm saying in this or any other episode as an appeal to remain in a situation or a relationship in which you are unhappy or you're being mistreated. 
When I talk about having compassion for people with pathological narcissism and NPD, I'm talking to society at large, to the public, and to mental health professionals and online personalities who make a living spreading stigma and selling scandalizing representations of this particular form of mental illness. I'm never talking to individuals in personal relationships with someone who is harming or mistreating them. I simply can't say that clearly enough. If anyone is hurting you, you should absolutely, 100%, seek support. If you're someone who identifies as struggling with pathological narcissism or NPD, moving toward greater health means developing a more stable, realistic, and positive self-image. It means progressively learning to tolerate the distortions in self-perception that characterize these issues without relying so much on disruptive or maladaptive ways of coping. Working to more reliably see the separation between self and others is a great way to practice all of these skills. In my previous video on narcissistic rage, I discussed not taking things personally. Recognize that other people are their own centers of emotional gravity, and their thoughts, feelings, and behaviors have almost everything to do with them and almost nothing to do with you. Well, the same goes for you. You are your own being, your own self. Take ownership of the deficits inside of yourself that cause you to struggle with self-esteem. Recognize that these deficits reside in you and that no one else is obligated to help you with them in any way. Practice asking for reassurance and emotional support in ways that are not boundary-crossing. Don't pressure or coerce anyone to help you with your insecurities. Just ask. If they're busy or unable to do so, then you might need to try something else. See if you can find something that is inherently non-destructive and that involves treating yourself and other people with kindness and respect. Take a long walk, write in a journal, express yourself through art, lose yourself in a game or a movie, enjoy a special treat or dinner, scream into a pillow, go to the gym. See if you can find a way to make space for your internal experience, however upsetting or distressing it might be, without trying to get rid of it, externalize it, or take it out on yourself or anyone else. You are a separate self. You're flawed and imperfect, just like the rest of us. You're one of more than eight billion such selves on planet Earth, and there's no requirement that you be anything more than exactly who you are in this exact moment, feeling whatever you feel. You're separate, yes, but you're not alone. Okay, so that's it for today. As always, leave comments, questions, or suggestions for future episodes. And if you leave a comment, try to be respectful. One of the focuses of this episode is tolerating distressed states of mind and holding unwanted feelings without abusing other people. And that applies to everyone, not just those who struggle with pathological narcissism. And until next time, take good care.